0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and enkindle in us the fire of your divine love. Send forth your Spirit, and we shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Amen. Hello again. I am Eric Immel, and welcome back to Live the Questions. Today, we continue exploring the second week of the Spiritual Exercises of St. Ignatius, which offers us an opportunity to pray with Jesus in his public life and ministry. Before we dive into it, as always, a brief recap of where we've been so far. I invited you to begin this retreat four days ago by asking a simple question. Where are you? Today and every day, we can only begin our work in deepening our relationship with God from right where we are. Then we explored our own sinfulness and brokenness through the lens of two spirits at work in our lives, the good spirit and the evil spirit. We asked ourselves, who told us that? And being attentive to the movements of both spirits in our lives, we tried to note the ways that the evil spirit, the divider and the accuser, draws us into darkness, as well as those moments when the Good Spirit reveals the light. Yesterday, we began to consider the fact that God, in the person of Jesus, breaks into the world and joins in our humanity. We asked, how can this be? How can it be that this person, Jesus, entered the world in such an unexpected way? Who taught him? What happened before Jesus went public? How can it be that we know virtually nothing about him until he turned 30 years old? We know he lived those years fully and came to know himself. So what happened in those hidden years? And how did they shape his humanity and his divinity? How did they shape his ministry and his whole life? Today then we will explore that ministry. Our guiding question for today what do you want? Now, the Gospels are, sp- are packed with telling stories about the person of Jesus. Stories that show us what he did, how he did it, and who he was. We know that Jesus was a healer, a teacher, a prophet. He was a master of the weather, a mud maker, and a man of prayer. In coming to know this person more deeply, we might find the particular ways in which we feel called to emulate Jesus and to unite ourselves to his mission, to proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand. In our experience of contemplation, of putting ourselves in the scene of gospel stories, we come to know Jesus more fully, which is a key purpose of the exercises, and especially in this the second week. In practicing contemplative prayer, I think it's good to remember what we have at our disposal to help enrich and deepen our encounter with Christ in the Gospels. One such way we can use our imagination in prayer is by practicing what we sometimes call the application of the senses. That is, we engage our minds and our hearts to generate a sensory experience of the Gospel. Our senses, smell, sight, taste, touch— and hearing are key tools we have in using our memory and imagination to get the full story. I have a distinct image of my family's Thanksgiving meal, and my Aunt Dorothy's green bean casserole is at the center of that image. This year there was no chance I was going to celebrate the Thanksgiving holiday with my family, And so in feeling the full weight of pandemic and a deeper than usual experience of homesickness, I decided to bring a part of my family's Thanksgiving meal to our table in Boston. After getting in touch with Dorothy for the recipe, I set to work. Now, this isn't the standard French's onion strings topped green bean casserole. This is a sweet and sour variety topped with crispy bacon. And let me tell you, none of the grease is drained from this dish. As I finished making the dish for the first time, every one of my senses was engaged. The look of the dish once prepared was a feast for my eyes, an image of home. The smell mixed with everything else on Thanksgiving Day drove a particular nostalgia, that feeling of sadness, which was deeply helpful in making me feel close to my family in spite of the miles between us. The texture of this casserole in just a few bites not only jarred my memory, but drew recollections of past conversations with my family around the Thanksgiving table. And the taste. Oh, the taste. It was as familiar to me as anything. Uniting my worlds, shortening the distance between what was and what now is, what felt lost and what was right in front of me. My senses, each of them together, helped me remember things about myself that are important and that highlighted what truly matters. My senses, a source of input, helped me heal, reveal, and remind. When applied in my contemplative prayer, my senses can serve the same purpose as they did in preparing that dish from home. My senses give me the opportunity not only to draw my own experience into the Gospels, but they also paint a vivid picture of who Jesus might have been and how he operates. All this with the hope of modeling my life after his. What might this practice of prayer be like? Imagine, it's a hot day, the sun high in the sky. There's a dusty, busy road lined with vendors selling any manner of produce and cooked meats. People are conducting business, neighbors crossing paths, and some folks down on their luck asking strangers passing by for whatever help they need can offer. One such man, his name is Bartimaeus, is doing just that. Bartimaeus sits along the side of the road with his cloak in the dirt. Listening to the chatter around him, he learns that Jesus is walking the road with a group of followers. Bartimaeus has heard of this Jesus, and he's heard the stories about him. This man, Jesus, has the power to heal illnesses and afflictions. And so Bartimaeus, in that moment, takes stock of his life. He feels the ground beneath him, and he thinks, it doesn't have to be this way. And so Bartimaeus cries out, Jesus, son of David, have pity on me. Imagine the hustle and bustle, people going about their business, and a voice like this one cutting through that noise. Heads turn toward the voice, and people see him. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, eyes perhaps glossed over or shut completely. Perhaps Jesus doesn't hear him at first, but the followers of Jesus catch Bartimaeus' cry on the air. And what do they do? Do they point him out to Jesus? No. Jesus' followers rebuke Bartimaeus and tell him to be quiet, to silence his voice, to stay right where he is and remain in the state he's in blind and begging. Perhaps some tears come at the moment of rejection for Bartimaeus. But God love him. He persists, crying out all the more loudly and urgently, Jesus, have pity on me. Finally, Jesus hears him and stops. He tells his followers to call Bartimaeus forward. So Bartimaeus throws aside his dirty cloak and springs up, feeling his way through the crowd toward Jesus. Maybe he bumps into a person or two along the way. And then when he gets close, he hears the voice, full but gentle, and feels simultaneously nervous and hopeful. Jesus then asks Bartimaeus a simple question. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want? Just think. Think. In hearing about this man, Jesus, and in knowing what he's capable of, Bartimaeus could have seemingly asked for anything. He could have asked for riches, honor, fame, anything. And yet, without missing a beat, Bartimaeus, a blind man, asks for the one thing he wants more deeply than anything else. He wants his sight. I want to see, he tells Jesus. And Jesus replies, great sight it is, your faith Has saved you, and Bartimaeus gets his sight back. Try to imagine the flood of colors, the sight of a rooster or stacks of fruit or blue skies overhead, the bleak but busy landscape swarmed with people, the smiles and frowns of faces, even the first impression of his own appearance his clothes, his sandals, his toes wiggling in the sand between them. How does Bartimaeus respond to all of this? He doesn't go back to his spot and continue begging in the old way, asking for pity or a bite to eat or for a coin or for anything else. No, he follows Jesus on his way. What life follows for Bartimaeus, we're not sure. We don't hear from Bartimaeus again in the Gospels, but we can imagine, can't we? Having received a miraculous gift, who else would Bartimaeus follow? What else could he do? How much of this moment changed everything for him? And who aided in that change? What he wanted, he asked for in faith. And through Jesus, he received it. So who is this person, Jesus? A key in the exercises is praying for a particular grace. The grace here is asking to know Jesus more fully, to see him more clearly, to love him more dearly, to follow him more nearly. What do we experience when we contemplate his life in the stories of the gospel? When we see him heal others, those paralyzed and deaf, those stricken by demons, those who are hungry and who need food? What do we experience when we see him teach and speak truth to power? When we see him calm storms and walk across water? Pick your favorite scene, any of your favorite gospel stories and take some time to notice. And then think to yourself, What do I want? What might I ask of this Jesus? What have I asked for in the past? And how has God responded to me? Let's not forget that at the core of it, many of us want the same things. We want to be seen and heard, to be loved, to be happy. Do we take the time to ask for those things? Do we trust that God, that Jesus, in his desire to offer us boundless mercy and grace, will provide? Are we willing to cry out as Bartimaeus did? Do we trust that our cries will be heard by a good and loving God? And more importantly, do we believe that we, like Bartimaeus, are worthy of God's loving response? For three years, I worked at a small college in downtown Chicago, and I had a great office complete with a full-sized couch, and I lived with my door more or less always open. Classes at this college ended at 5.15 every afternoon, and it wasn't uncommon to get a number of students at my door when the school day was done. One evening in particular, with nothing special happening, an unusually large number of after-school visitors dropped by my door. I found myself welcoming people in and talking, listening, and laughing until nearly 8 p.m. When finally it felt like things had died down, I made a move to gather my things and head toward the train home. Just as I was about to leave though, one last visitor came by. Do you have a minute, they asked. Now, the day had been long, but a minute indeed I had. So, my students sat down on the couch, me in my desk chair, and we started chatting. With minimal prompting from me, I was treated to about an hour of verbal processing. I learned about this student's childhood, about their regular movement between their grandmother's homes as a kid, about some of the chaos in their family life. I learned a little bit more about school, what was going well and what wasn't, about some real struggles with self-worth and motivation, about a lack of clear vision for the future, and about how to keep up when giving up felt like the more attractive option. This conversation wound down very naturally, and just before we parted ways to leave the building together, the student looked at me and said, you know, I'm sorry for being a burden. I'm sure you had a long day. And I thought to myself, my God, there is nowhere else I'd rather be than with you. You are not a burden. You are worthy. You are good. There's another story in the Gospel, a story about an unnamed woman, a man named Jairus, and Jairus's daughter. I find myself returning to this story over and over again. So, what's the scene? Jesus is coming off a boat, no doubt escaping the other side of the Sea of Galilee and looking for a well-earned moment of pause. But of course, people find out that Jesus is headed their way and the crowd amasses. When the boat docks, there is a huge group and they're all, all trying to get their hands on Jesus. Jairus shows up in this moment breathless and asks Jesus with great urgency to come with him. You see, Jairus' daughter, she is dying. And Jairus hopes that Jesus can somehow help. So Jesus starts making his way through the crowd. Imagine if you can the sight of a celebrity flanked by security, cameras flashing, people shouting all manner of things, questions, requests, and the like. Jesus may have been overwhelmed by the experience And Jairus surely wants this crowd to part for a faster trip home. In the midst of all of this, we meet a woman who, for 12 years, has been afflicted with the burden of hemorrhages. Scripture tells us that she had suffered at the hands of many doctors. And I can imagine that she was desperate for anything that might help ease her pain and discomfort. She, like Bartimaeus, has heard of this guy Jesus and wonders whether he is her last hope. But she also feels afraid to approach him. Perhaps she doesn't want to be a burden to him or she thinks herself unworthy. But she also knows what she wants. And so she chooses her move. She sneaks up behind Jesus in the crowd. She reaches out. And just touches the hem of his clothing. Instantly, she feels herself healing, made whole for the first time in 12 years. And elated or perhaps shocked, she moves away from Jesus as quickly as she had approached him. But Jesus says out loud to the crowd, Who touched me? People say something back to him like, what do you mean who touched you? There's like a million people here and they are all reaching out to touch you. And Jesus says, yes, but still someone important touched me. Frozen in place, the woman knows that he is talking about her. And so with great courage, she faces him, admits what she did, perhaps even apologizes for burdening him, But his face, I imagine, breaks into a broad smile, and he says to her, as he said to Bartimaeus, don't you worry, you know what you want, and I can help. Your faith has saved you. And she goes home feeling whole and complete and unburdened for the first time in 12 years. Now, let's not forget Jairus and his daughter in this story. Jairus knew what he wanted. He wanted to save his daughter's life. And in spite of the fact that in his mind he had lost his daughter, Jesus still goes with him and honors his request. Jesus also raises her back to life. What do you want? Do not be afraid to ask for it. For the Gospels show us that Jesus honors our requests. We are not a burden to him. We are worthy. What do you want? How, in exploring the life of Jesus, do we come to know him and in that relationship find the courage to ask? Remember, in contemplation we come to know Jesus more fully, and in knowing him, in talking with him, observing how he engages others, we come to align ourselves more closely with his way of being. In the second week, then, on top of engaging gospel stories, the exercises offer us a way of considering what we want by inviting us to choose for ourselves who we want to follow. What we want and who we follow. Keys to our relationship with God. Ignatius asks us, in light of these two keys, to engage in a meditation in the second week of the exercises, a meditation called the Meditation on the Two Standards. These two standards and its meditation are, according to Dean Brackley, The central meditation of the entire spiritual exercises, and to engage it, we need to both engage all of our senses to imagine the scene and find the very center of what it is that we want. When Ignatius says standard, we have to remember that he's using a medieval military image here. A standard is a flag or a banner under which soldiers would march into battle. So the two standards are the two standards of God, the Lord of light, and of Satan, the Lord of darkness, Christ, the devil. And we must choose which standard we want to stand beneath. Now, the standard of the devil promises fame and honor and riches, material comfort and the capacity to do whatever you want, whenever you want. The catch is this, not everyone can have this life. By choosing the standard of the devil, we put ourselves in competition with everyone else and we play a zero-sum game where some have and others have not. Are you, am I, are we willing to create burden and hardship for others in order to get ours? Is that how the world is supposed to be? Is that what you want? The standard of Christ, on the other hand, is rooted in what we've come to know about him his humble beginnings and human experience, the way he serves, giving sight to the blind, healing suffering that's lasted 12 years, raising people back to life, Jesus always reminding us of our worth, that we are not a burden. This standard doesn't come with honor, riches, and pride, but rather with poverty, rejection, and humility. Poverty not in the sense of having nothing, but in seeing how Jesus gives of himself, and knowing that the world benefits from our generosity toward others. Rejection, not in the sense of being hated by everyone, but in the sense of speaking truth to power, speaking truth to corruption and injustice in the world, and risking what that might cost us. Humility, not in the sense that every action is proudly modest, but in the sense that with Jesus it is never about me, but always about we that what good we do is done in communion and for our purposes of being with God forever, not only for our own glorification and the affections of others. Does this sound more like what you want? Remember, we are at the tail end of Lent, 40 days in which we recall the 40 days that Jesus spent in the desert being tempted by the devil and the devil's standard. The devil promised Jesus, during those 40 days, riches, honor, and pride, and it must have been tough for Jesus, but he rejected those offers and that standard. He chose the opposite path. He chose light and love and community. This tension between the two standards is, again, according to Brackley, the issue of tension in our world still today. We see it in persistent structures of racism. We see it in questions about the legality of a person's presence in our communities. We see it in overconsumption and in underfunded schools and services. We see it in a world rife with dissonance about whether I can live for myself alone or whether I actually have a responsibility to something beyond myself. We also see this tension within ourselves. If you remember, I I told you a story about a significant weight loss I experienced years ago. The truth is that I was marching under the wrong standard at that time. I loved my diet of buffalo chicken sandwiches and crinkle cut fries. I loved my big lovable belly, but that love faded. I became exhausted with myself. I started not loving myself, not caring for myself, not seeing the way that my life, though isolated to a pattern of really challenging consumption, had an effect on other people. I lived for me and for no one else. But at one point I asked myself, Eric, what do you really want? Certainly not this. I decided that it didn't have to be that way and so I found a new standard and it wasn't easy. The gym was foreign and I felt shy, ashamed and exhausted. I was choosing something daily that I didn't really like that I wasn't comfortable with and that left me wondering whether anyone or anything in my life would change along with me. All of that over the bliss and the blindness of what was for me an unhealthy and unexamined way of being. But this adjustment, this choice of a new standard, is totally worth it in the end. Choosing the standard of Christ may feel dissonant, but such is the work of awakening something new within us. It may take a long time to realize the fruits of choosing the standard of Christ, but as I've said sometimes, and as I've heard, if you want to get to it, you've got to go through it. We might not know what to expect in choosing the standard of Jesus, in naming what we really want. It may feel utterly new and different, but with trust in the love of Jesus and with commitment to his way, I think that we will all be surprised and humbled by the fruits. I spent a summer in Northeast India a few years ago, and it seemed to me that lots of things were done in exactly the opposite way that I would have done them. For example, when American children are learning to feed themselves, it seems that the default is to abandon utensils and dig in with bare hands. This is where we get delightful photos of kids on their birthday sitting in a high chair covered with cake. Kids are likely admonished for not using utensils, which makes sense, because I eat with forks and knives and spoons. That's how we eat, and we all had to learn that somehow. But in India, there was a beautiful way of eating that required no utensils. Using our hands alone, people would create these small balls of rice, meat, and vegetables, and simply pop them into their mouths. It was beautiful, and I came to love this way of eating. And believe me, it took a little practice. When I felt discouraged, I would grab a spoon and go back to my old Immel shovel methodology. I remember distinctly one day at a parish meal following a mass and watching a little girl, no more than three years old, using a spoon to eat her food. A parent came over, gently took the spoon from the child, and invited her to eat with her hand instead exactly the opposite of what I would have expected. Another quick example of the opposites of India, once I had developed a heat rash on my arms due to my constant sweating, and so a Jesuit took me to the pharmacy for some medication. There was a crowd of people standing near the storefront, no discernible line at all. The Jesuit I was with simply put his finger in the air and pushed his way toward the front of the store. Someone behind the counter of the pharmacy saw him and waved him forward and we bought some powder and that was it, we left. What just happened? I asked him. And he replied to me, brother, there are no lines in India. Dog eat dog at the drugstore. The opposite of what I expected. With these two standards, the one promising riches, honor, and pride, and the other offering poverty, rejection, and humiliation, It's understandable that we'd choose the former sometimes. We do sometimes choose ourselves first. The standard of self-preservation is a compelling one. But remember who offers the other way, whose standard promises salvation. Deep down, we might find that that's really what we want. The joy of serving others, of living selflessly, of being at peace with the world around us, of existing for something beyond ourselves of helping to cultivate a world in which it is easy to do good. Naming to Jesus what we want, especially when we name it in the spirit of his way, his standard, leads to deeper communion with him and with one another. By discovering more about Jesus and what he stands for, the choice to follow him, no matter the cost, becomes increasingly and urgently clear. As we journey onward tomorrow in our retreat, we'll take some time to explore the cost of choosing the standard of Christ and where ultimately that choice might lead us. For now, for today, take some time for quiet. Pray with Bartimaeus. Pray with Jairus and his daughter and pray with the woman with hemorrhages. Those and some other good passages for contemplation are in the episode description. There's also a link to an article by John Monroe that will help you pray the meditation on the two standards if you so choose as always use whatever is helpful to you until tomorrow then let's continue to pray for one another glory be to the father and to the son and to the holy spirit as it was in the beginning is now and ever shall be world without end